Hello and welcome to Cocktails and Comics. Uh, I am this is I'm Tim Elliott, and I'm joined tonight with by Kirk Greenfield. It's just the two of us tonight. Uh, the other guys have either had other things to do or it's too late. And I'm actually keeping Kirk up. I think a little past his bedtime. No. <laughs> but we're just gonna have a, a you know I don't think we have anything planned. We, I know you want to talk about rockets. Yeah, so to speak. <laughs> Actually, yes. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, this was the evening when they were anticipating a Chinese uh, booster rocket to come uncontrolled back to Earth. You would think they have, would have learned their lesson with Skylab and a couple of other scary uh, descents, but this was another country. And they don't apparently care whether it comes down in Mexico, <laughs> in Florida, in Perfect. Texas, or in the ocean. So... Hey, it's your problem, guys. <clears throat> the end result is it came down in the Indian Ocean about, oh, 90 minutes ago, right over the Maldives. So, uh, you know, well, there I'm, may I'm... be a oh, go ahead. couple of houses or huts <laughs> that are missing their, their roofs there. I'm not well, sure. I'm going to plead ignorance here. And is this a booster rocket they're testing for us, their space program? Or is it for like no. a bal interballistic or ICBM? This is... This is the space program, and they had launched, as I understand it, a satellite and got it into orbit. However, the booster uh, fell away mm. or was out of control and came down faster and without control. And the general accepted policy now is, hey, that was acceptable when we were first starting. Yeah. But now that we know these <laughs> things have to come down, you're supposed to plan your rockets so that they remain under control so you may not be able to put it right on X marks the spot, but you're at least able to guide it to assure that it's going to land yeah. in the ocean. That's crazy. They yeah. uh, where I the, they didn't the the town I grew up in, in Texas didn't the street that I live on lived on my mother still mm -hmm. lives there was I think the housing district was built uh, 64 65 maybe. And all the streets that our street and all the streets around us are named after rockets. So I lived in Redstone. Oh, cool. There was uh -huh. Titan. There was Atlas. Um, there's then they started kind of going. Then they went Apollo. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's it. Cause for the longest time, I thought, why is ours Redstone? And I, you know, I got the Titanus and the, At, uh, the Atlas and the Titan, but I didn't know that Redstone was a rocket all also. Oh so yeah, it's kind of Redstone rocket series. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly where it fits in the puzzle, but I do remember hearing that in the news, in the buzz, as I was a young kid. Of course, I was very upset on that Saturday. Was it a Saturday? No, it was probably a weekday when um, all of the television channels in about 1960 had this bald man in black and white, and everybody was talking to him, and I thought it was Nikita Khrushchev, but it turns out it was John Glenn. <laughs> it just completed this flight, and so it was on the news, all channels, like 24-7, and it was like, okay, well, that was a big, okay, yeah, we that got was it. A let's big, move on. Yeah, that's, I Where's know. the cartoons? Exactly. Come on, kid. where's the yeah. Mickey Mouse Club? You know, it's like, let's, okay, let's get on with life, so. I had the same reaction when, uh, we should have, we're talking rockets, we should have Scott Gardner on here, when the, uh, the space shuttle blew up. The first Ooh, one, and yes. I was I was not working. I was home watching Price Is Right, 
in the middle of the big price, you know, showcase showdown at the end, and they cut in, and you know, space shuttle's blown up, and then you know that was it. They were just they never cut back. So it was like like you said. I mean, it's a tragedy, but it was just it consumed all the uh, all all three channels at that point. Yeah. Well, didn't uh, we, we should share what we're drinking? I mean, here we are with. Uh, you know, are, our, yeah. Our you've drink, got your jelly beverage. jelly glass that you showed me earlier. You're drinking juicy juice. No, actually, um, well, I could it could be, but it's not. It's cran apple. I, oh. I lean towards cran apple from Ocean Spray, and when I run out of that, then I steal my son's juicy juice. <laughs> That's a little sweeter to my taste, but. I am enjoying Fanula made this for me, my lovely wife. It's uh she bought some it's cranberry, mango Ooh. and apple. And she put a little ginger ale in it and a little bit of Irish whiskey. Just um, a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah, it actually just is a little bit. It's not very strong, but Uh huh. She's getting she's ready <laughs> she's getting you south so that you'll go out <laughs> like a light. I know how this goes. Oh, she can drink me under the table. Mm-hmm. She's she's the one that's got the hollow leg in our relationship. I cannot uh, hold I cannot hold up to her. But. About thirty years ago, we were in Southern California in uh, Huntington Beach, and we were planning to go back to the uh, to the the uh, the relatives in Southern Michigan, where it was cold and snowy. So we were making chocolate balls, I think. <laughs> anyway, um, I I wasn't hip to the recipe but uh i was helping my wife roll the balls and they're rum balls and uh i wasn't aware of the fact that there was rum in it so i was <laughs> rolling these balls and i didn't gobble any but uh you know when i was finished and i rolled these various things i don't know maybe there were two dozen of them or something like that i started licking my fingers that's all it took wow <laughs> i was starting to get a little mm. tipsy it's like, whoa! I don't feel right. My wife was like, "How much did you have to drink?" And I said, "Nothing. I've just been, uh, you know, just licking my fingers because they were sticky." And she's like, "Let me try that." So anyway, <laughs> she laughs because I'm a teetotaler, and, and you know, didn't realize that we never told the people back home um, what we'd done. But uh, it was like, whoa, <laughs> crazy. Yeah, contact high. I think so. Yeah. I uh, know we're supposed to be talking about comics and, and cocktails. Actually, I have something else about rockets that I wanted to bring up that is comic related. All right, what you got? This is kind of strange. Uh, you'll have to indulge me uh, quite a bit here. And uh, this is, is probably a longer story than it merits. But uh, have you read the book uh, Slugfest, the 50-year history between DC and Marvel? I have not. It's good. It is very well written. It seems to be very well researched, and I've just finished uh, reading it. It's been out for a couple of years, so there's a couple more uh, years that they need to include in a sequel or another chapter to tell what else has happened. But I'll summarize uh, just the point that I want. When Marvel was introduced in about 61, and their heroes were starting to catch on in 64, 65, DC being a very stayed, um, conservative, literary organization, couldn't figure out how these upstarts were attracting the audience because as far as DC was concerned, they had the better product. You know, we have real writers and editors and 
you know, they couldn't figure out what the appeal of those Marvel guys were over there. Well, they never really ever did figure it out, and they've always been playing catch-up to some degree. But the significance is, in about 1965, January 1st, Erwin Donafield, I'm not sure if I'm saying that name right, he was the, uh, I believe, the publisher, he decided that what uh, the discriminating readers of DC Comics simply couldn't find, couldn't recognize their titles on the news rack, on the spinner rack. And so he responded to the Marvel Corner Box, which was a brilliant marketing success, although they didn't quite realize it, with something known as the Go-Go Checks. Are you familiar with this? I uh, do not know what a Go-Go Check? As in yes, Go-Go Checks. Checks, no. Uh, a plaid, it's a stripe that runs oh. across the top of all the DC comics from about um, January 1st of 65 through about 67. I can't quote you the exact month when this came in and out, but it was an effort that when these comics were sitting in the spinner rack, that by flipping through it, as every kid did, you would see the top inch or so of the comic, and, oh, there's a DC, and they want to take a look at it. Well... Yeah, okay, in in theory, that works really well. But in fact, when you just have the comics laying out on themselves, this gaudy black and white checkerboard stripe across the top is ridiculous. They were called go-go checks, and they were the the laughingstock of the industry for putting it on there. Marvel, on the other hand, um, specifically Steve Ditko, Ditko, had been forward-thinking enough that when he developed Spider-Man, he placed the first corner box in the upper left-hand corner with a head and shoulders shot of Spider-Man. This was brilliant because whether or not it was on the spinner rack and kids were flipping through the top, they could immediately see who the character was, who the, the issue was about, even if the, the, the stack of comics in the yeah. spinner rack mixed up. Or if the books were on a news uh, seller's rack and held with a paper clip or, or something hanging they could see the cover or if they were along a shelf left to right typically there'd be the left hand half inch would be sticking out just enough so that you could see the corner box so it was brilliant positioning and marketing and it worked and they did it across the entire line and to this day the corner box and or having an image of the character in the upper left hand corner is still fondly remembered Okay, so this is a long way around explaining. They, at DC, decided that they had to do more to reach the modern youth. And what were the modern youth doing? Oh, they were buying model model uh, rockets, model cars, model um, tanks, you name it. And slot car racing was just beginning to catch on as well. So, very conveniently... Um, since one of their big advertisers that they were wooing was Aurora Models. You remember the Aurora Models mm-hmm. of s- superheroes positioned on the back cover or the back uh, pages of the, the um, comic books? Yeah. Well, since Aurora was their um, advertiser, they went ahead and they created a half-page strip, um, one-shot strips that would appear sprinkled throughout their books and it was called Cap's Hobby Center and it had a character who if you ask me it looked an awful lot like Mr. Wilson from the Dennis the Menace cartoons uh, <laughs> from the from those 
Cap as a very friendly, uh, jovial uh, person who ran a, a hobby shop. And basically, he would always be telling a tale or he'd be giving advice to the, the boys in the strip that would come into him with problems. Now, this morphed. It changed from Cap's Hobby Center to Cap's Hobby Tips after about two years. And the format changed a little bit as well. Basically, this was a four-panel comic. It was simple. It was straightforward. You either got it or you didn't care. And it would run on a half page along with something was called uh, Direct Currents, which was DC's answer to the bullpen page, Bolton's, the Marvel bullpen yeah. page. They thought, oh, well, we need one of those as well. Or it would be paired up with a half page of story content that would end a chapter or a story for DC. So it was um, well positioned. Uh, and, you know, it, it, you were either into slot cars and t into <laughs> this month's topic or you weren't. Or they were talking about woodworking uh, and you were either into that or you weren't. But it was always the generic positioning was... Gee, Cap, I don't know how to do this, that, or solve this problem in the first first panel. Second panel, he said, oh, that's okay. Let's just use this common household item, and I'll show you how to fix it. <laughs> the reaction from the kid is, household item? How does that work? In the third panel, he shows how to apply it, whether it's a paper clip or it's sanding paper or an emery board or whatever it is hmm. to work or finish or to improve on your model. And then in the last panel, it's like, oh, that's neat. I'm going to do that, or I can't wait to show Timmy. This was the formula, basic that outline for every single installment, no matter what the topic was. But the neat thing was right at the very top, you know, there was a piece of script that would say, got an idea? Mail it to us at CAP at National Comics, 555 Lexington Avenue or whatever the address was, New York, New York. You'll receive $5 and the original artwork if selected. That's kind of cool. Well, yeah, back in the 60s, it was, hey, five bucks, you could buy one or two uh, of these plastic model kits. Yeah. And having the original artwork with your name, because in the first panel, there was always a small box that said, thanks to Tim Smith, hmm. uh, you know, New York, New York, or wherever you were from. Not your complete address, but there was always a tip of the hat to whoever had submitted it. Well, for the first couple of months, they had to prime the pump because the kids didn't catch on. They didn't know what, what the, the, yeah. the routine was. So they had various entries from uh, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson, uh, from, you know, just kind of in-jokes, tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. Uh, and some of them, you know, didn't have any credit at all, but it was their idea. The strip was drawn by Henry Boltonoff, uh, who was a national cartoonist, very, very well-known, very simple cartoons, very simple drawings, and they are very fondly remembered. They ran from about 66 through 68 before they were phased out. Um, and so these little cartoons that if you collect DC Comics or you read them, you've seen it or you yeah. will recognize it, and so people scan them and share them on Facebook pages, either on DC Comics or on hobby um, websites like Model Rocketry, uh, Racing Cars, what have yeah. you. So just recently, I kind of got into it, and um, 
you know, out of, I'd say I've probably seen two dozen of these things um, after doing some research and looking for them. And the majority of them, eh, you know, it's not my cup of tea, but always the simplest method of how to sand or how to attach something that looks like something else. They're very simple. They're very direct. You get it or you don't. So as I've been sharing these on Facebook with some other people, the majority of people have said, that's cool. I did something (laughs) like that. Or, oh, I never thought to do it that way. You know, clearly out of, uh, you know, six responses, five will be enthusiastic and one will say, I thought this was a website about model rockets. Why are you reprinting comics? Wow. And so, so there's, there's, you know, the vast majority of people are responding positively and say, keep these common. This is really cool. I'm a little stumped. I have no idea why DC Comics never collected these. I mean, they've reprinted it. And if you look online for uh, comics online for free, uh, you know, you could find these. Yeah images or these scans, but they've never been collected in one place. Now, I don't know if Henry Boltonoff, who, who's died, he's gone now. I don't know if he has any sort of creator rights. I it suspect may, not. Yeah, maybe a rights, a rights issue. But it's, and of course, every one of these things that say, mail your idea to 555 Lexington Avenue. Well, DC Comics isn't at that address anymore, and that offer does not work. But I would think that it'd make a really neat sort of a coffee table book to collect them all over this four-year well, period, yeah, they, they could collect them. I don't. I've never. Re- I have not read enough DC Silver Age. I've really read very little DC Silver Age to have run across any of those. I, it, it sounds like something you would see in a highlights if you know what highlights are. Oh yes, yes, um, yeah, something like that. Or, or uh, what was the other one? There was highlights, and there was Goofus and Gallant. I remember that was in high, that was in highlights, but we got yep. one in school that was called Dynamite. That was a little magazine we would get in school. That was kind mm-hmm. of, a, you know, because we had uh, they would occasionally come to school and have it was not like the bookmobile, but it was you could order books. You know, you could sure and you would, and get them in like three four weeks. And once they actually did have a, I think the actual bookmobile did show up because they had. They had them in the cafeteria. They kind of partitioned it off, and they had these kind of A-frames, like mm-hmm. little book racks on wheels that they brought in. And that's where right. I bought my giant-sized um, Star Wars. It was two issues. It collected the first six issues, but it was a big mm-hmm. oversized ones. And that's where I picked those up. I think I paid 50 cents a piece for them, maybe a yeah. dollar. Um, but it was designed to encourage you to read. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, it was all about. When Dime Out was that way, you know, you would get books. Um, I was a, I still am. I was a super slow reader. I would, you know, I remember reading uh, Stuart Little when I was in probably third or fourth grade, and I mm-hmm. kept checking it out of the, the library. And it took me, and that's not a necessarily a big book, and it's not necessarily a dense book, but it took me forever to get through that book. And to this mm-hmm. day, I just do not. I don't read fast. Well, you're in a visual medium now. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about that. There's a, a probably reason for that. I remember some of my fondest books were either ones that my elder sister read to me or that were being read to me in the, I don't know, fifth grade class or the fourth grade class. Uh, anyways, the couple of the, the titles were My Father's Dragon, hmm. and I can't think of who wrote it. It's something like Ronald Wilson. 
Anyways, it's a Caldecott Medal winner, and it's cute, and it's a 10-chapter book, and it's it's sort of Indiana Jones for third graders or second graders, <laughs> and it's a really cute tale of how... Um, I'm trying to think of an example. Everything that the kid who runs away from home packs in his backpack, you know, 12 suckers and three rubber bands and, you know, a hammer and nail, everything that he takes along comes to play later on in another chapter to get him out of a jam. Hmm. I mean, he has the exact number. It's it's formulated that way. Anyway, so he, he winds up going to this other island where he rescues a dragon that has been imprisoned and is being kept by the jungle animals on this wild island. And he ultimately rescues it in a hair-raising, um, edge-of-your-seat, thrilling uh, cliffhanger at the end and flies him home. And, you know, he was happy ever since. <laughs> I mean, it's a cute little story. It's not like it's only, Pete's dragon. Sort of. And maybe it's inspired by the same one. Uh, but that was a good one that I liked. Uh, Mr. Twig's Mistake was also a Caldecott winner. Um, Brighty of Grand Canyon, which is still in, in print, about a, a a donkey or a mule that uh, goes up and down the canyon slopes at the Grand Canyon. Uh, that's still around. The, but, but those were some of my favorite ones, but it would take me so long to burrow through these books. They were just just annoyingly uh, thick. They were textbooks with cute little illustrated drawings, mm-hmm. yeah, that's but just to accentuate the well, only book I ever had that I can remember having been read to me was A Wrinkle in Time. And oh, that, I only got about halfway through that. Is that a good book? It's uh, it's pretty good. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of high concept. It's not really a, it's, it's my wife loves the books. So I think it's one of her favorite <laughs> books. Um, in the the movie that came out last year, or I think it was last year, it was a little disappointing. But mm-hmm. it's a uh, it's kind of high concept sci-fi, but it's also, it's not written. It's not. I wouldn't say it's written at like a kid's level. It's like Harry Potter. You know, Harry right. Potter to me is not written like to a kid's level, but it's kind of geared towards kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's pretty good. But I was, you know, when I, I I had a my best friend growing up was a, a fellow named Soren Palmquist, who was. Uh, uh, Storm was always more outgoing to me. He was probably smarter than me. He was reading more stuff before I was. But he introduced me to a lot of a lot of books that uh, he would he would start reading or had read, and then I would kind of pick them up. So I I went, uh, I found Michael Moorcock through him. I found uh, a lot of Alan Dean Foster through him, mm. uh, and things like that. So we were kind of reading the same the same books. You know, I was kind of on his coattails but um i don't read now well, as much as i should I, I i really i try but I, right now if i read in bed which is what i usually mm-hmm. used to read i would just fall right to sleep well that's not the right place to be reading no you know you need an overstuffed chair and a and a light coming over your shoulder mm-hmm. have you ever heard the uh the collection of uh child related science fiction stories called tomorrow's children edited by isaac asimov i have not it came out in about 66, maybe 67, and with a garish yellow and purple and orange cover. It was a hardbound. Both I and my namesake, another kid whose first name was Kirk, who was also very accelerated, 
who read science fiction, we both found it in the library at different times and burrowed through it. Uh, we loved it. And those books, I mean, it's nothing but an anthology book, you know, a collection of various licensed stories that have mm -hmm. to do with children uh, or offspring in various situations. There's like 22 or 24 stories in it or something like that. It doesn't tell an overall arcing story, but it was just collected and edited by uh, Isaac Asimov. Th those volumes, that particular garishly colored one, goes for hundreds of dollars on eBay if you can find one in any shape. Wow. I mean, they are highly prized. It has been reprinted once as a paperback in 1972, but the cover artwork looks nothing like the illustrated um, artwork inside. It's exactly the same book, but I think the typeset is different, and it's a smaller book. And you can find that reasonably priced, you know, 10 20 bucks, what have you, if you just want the stories. But I've got to tell you, that was my introduction to science fiction, and there are some dearly loved stories in there that, uh, that I really enjoyed and, and have lived with me to this very day. Um, I'm trying to think of a few that, that might be notable. One is called Star Bright, about a, a, a precocious, um, uh, a Charles Xavier, a, a mutant mm -hmm. girl who has advanced intellect who seems to be controlling her parents' life. And in fact, her mind calls out to another kid who moves onto their block. And the two of them have great adventures um, that the parents don't even recognize what's going on at first. But literally, one will run into the, the den and look at the, the, the uh, row of encyclopedias books on the shelf, never pick one off, but just stare at it for a moment and then go running out. And then the other one will come in and look at the, the encyclopedia books and say, oh, Penumbra, you're hiding in Penumbra. And it's like, no, no. Well, how can they, how do you do it? And it's like, because you always leave a smudge. That's how I can tell where you're hiding. So, you know, they are so far advanced that they are, are you know, just, they, and they, it's like Franklin Richardson and, uh, uh, Valeria Richards, you know, just really advanced kids. And ultimately they, um, you know, they, they get to the point where you're beginning to wonder, are they controlling the parents? Are they controlling the adults? Uh, or are they just humoring them? And then ultimately when the father shows the little girl what a Moebius strip is and how to construct one, she grasps it immediately and takes it to the next level and says, but what if you did that with a cube, a tesseract? And, you know, he's like, uh, it's beyond <laughs> his comprehension. He, he just doesn't know. And then all of a sudden, one day, the kids vanish. And he doesn't know where they are. Um, he can't find them. And ultimately, uh, I'm telling you more details about this story than, than you probably are interested in. Uh, ultimately, he decides that they must have figured out how to travel in time or somehow through their minds and it had something to do with the tesseract that if you take the tesseract and you turn it and then you try i've almost got it in my head you turn it three quarters of a turn and then connect it so and that's where the story ends maybe that's what inspired um nolan when he did interstellar could be it it's you know it, it's pretty brilliant um, it, it's very inspiring 
to make you think that, you know, that you're brighter than the other kids on the block. Yeah. Kind of pats you on the back. And there, there are other ones about space travel in the first colony on Mars. And um, there's a classic story, I can't think of, by the waters of Babylon, um, which has been reprinted and renamed a couple of times through the years. But it, but it seems to be a post-apocalyptic hunter-gatherer tribe. And I'm the seventh son of the seventh son of a chieftain. And so I'm the only one who's permitted to go near the big city uh, because it's a forbidden land. So ultimately, as he goes on his trek, it's a lot like Logan's run. He goes on the trek and he gets to the city of Washington or New York City. And of course, he describes the God Roads, which are two parallel strips of concrete with cracks and grass growing in the in the cracks and these overarching bridges and what have you. It's a freeway, okay? Mm -hmm. An abandoned freeway. So you don't get it at first, but you're about halfway through this short story, and he comes to a statue where there's this very imposing figure who's standing and gesturing majestically. He has longish hair that seems to be around his chin or around the back of his neck, and he's not sure why they made this statue to this god, but he can read the letters underneath and what it spells out is something that's missing a blank and then a s h i n blank o n so he says washington washington and at that point if you haven't got it the light bulb should go on that oh you know what's going on so he finally decides that you know even though he had been told years ago that the city had the burning fever and anybody who went there would be, you know, would fall sick and die, he makes his journey successfully and avoids a pack of wild animals, uh, wild dogs, and a bunch of other adventures. But he comes to realize they weren't gods, they were men. Um, you know, their skyscrapers are still here. Where they went, why they died, we don't know. But we have to come back. We have to build again. We have to learn from them. Sounds a little and that's like this... uh, Battlefield Earth, you know, uh, L. Ron Hubbard is kind of that way where uh, Little Planet of the Apes where man has reverted to a more primitive yes. um, form. There's a, there's a film in the 60s starring Robert Vaughn called Teenage Caveman. I think it's a Roger Corman <laughs> film. And it's similar to that. I mean, it's just spoilers, but the movie's probably 60 years old. And right. He seems to be, uh, you know, he's a he's in a, prim- well, a primitive tribe. You know, they're 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 kind of bows mm-hmm. and arrows, that kind of thing. And they come up against what they think is an alien. It's kind of like you're you're forbidden to go to this area. And in the end, it turns out that something had happened, and the world had. Uh, destroyed itself and then they had reverted to a more primitive state and it just and he was the one that was kind of questioning things and right it was just you know so that that story's been told um several times do you know who uh if you listen to um listen to the prophets thank you blaine dowler that uh i know the name yeah that he comes on uh listen to the prophets sometimes he's uh he has his own podcast called um bureau 42 and he covers X Files. He's doing. He's been covering the X Files, but he also. What would Blaine say? What yeah. does Blaine say? Yeah, I know that yeah. routine. He uh, he he covers X, the X Files, but he also uh, 
he uh, is downloading or he's presenting because I think he gets them off uh, archive.org so it's free. But it's 1950s sci-fi uh, radio sh- uh, broadcasts. They're called X-1. And I think it mm. ran for two years, three years. And it's usually there about 30 minutes or 40 minutes. And they're fully mm-hmm. dr- dramatic, dra- dramatized mm-hmm. with voices and all that. And a lot of them are written by Theodore Sturgeon, uh, Ray Bradbury. Uh, I think there's some Asimov. There's some, uh, I think there may be, I don't know if there's any uh, Matheson in there. But they're, they're interesting to listen to because they are that very pulpy type mm-hmm. uh, sci-fi. Uh, and they sometimes have, some are funny, some are have more of a tragic end, you know, some of them have kind of a Twilight Zone ending. Very but much. They're, they're all worth, uh, and he just puts them out like every other X-Files show, he puts one of those out. And uh, I've been, I've listened to maybe half a dozen of them. And they're all, they're usually worth listening to because they're, it's just, one, it's, 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 it's like being in a time machine because you're listening to the... Uh, and they had ads on there at the same time. You'll hear them talk mm-hmm. about uh, advertising. Chesterfield whatever. cigarettes right. or whatever. Yeah. Right. Uh, so what network you, is this under? Is this under the True True Two True Freaks? It's not umbrella. It's or not. Or is it Fire it's, and um, Water? I don't know what it's under. It's um, if you just look under Bureau Forty Two. Okay. Uh, you'll find it, and he and, and he's got in X minus one is up to like. 100 or 92 so there are and see there's these are from like 57 56 mm-hmm. um and they're worth About watching the time you know? i was born yeah they're li- they're worth listening to um, i will i like that i really like some of that pulpy stuff i uh last 10 years or so i got into um, doc savage i've been slowly trying to collect those books because mm-hmm. those books are you know you can that's 90 pages 100 pages but it's it's pulpy it's uh you know, it's, 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 again, it's, uh, like, it's like being in a time machine because you can kind of get an idea of what the writing was like and what, you know, that's mm-hmm. why I think people that, people that, you know, a lot of younger kids that dismiss black and white movies or older movies. Right. And it's like, no, you you know, watch, you know, I was, today I was watching, earlier I was watching a, a 1937 Humphrey Bogart film and it's like, no, this gives you an idea of what things were like back then you know be you know like kind of mm-hmm. your mind of things so that's um that's kind of kind of if you I'm were at. to look into our safety deposit box at uh, the bank where we have our our business account all that um we have two vhs tapes that are shrink wrapped with a adhesive sticker on the outside that i typed to my kids before they were old enough to read one is a copy of The Wrath of Khan <laughs> on VHS, and the other one is JFK, um, the movie by uh, um, Stone. 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 Yes. So, and I've got a sticker on both of them saying, you know, these were the things that inspired your parents when they were children. Our hopes and, and you know, desires for the future are, are encapsulated in, in Star Trek. Uh, in this great adventure, um, and here's a, a, a documentary that is a fantasy about what one man mm-hmm. tries to make sense out of a very real assassination that did happen. And so, you know, 
the thinking was when they grew up and we passed on and they'd unload the safety deposit box, so they'd come across this and share it with their children for a taste of their, you know, yeah. their grandparents' that's, hopes that's and dreams. Cool. That's really cool. I, Except I, it, instead of, is anybody going to have a VHS when that's, when that that's, comes? That's the rub, yeah. You, you, maybe you it's be able to watch it. DVD will, would be better. Um, I suspect that that format will, will be around longer than vhs but uh, we didn't know it at the time we, well you, you, you don't know, know. I, I i did some summer with with comics i bought um when my first nephew was born i bought the spider-man the amazing spider-man that came out the month he was born mm-hmm. and i wrote a little note in it and i sealed it up and i kept it for the longest time and i think i gave it to his parents and there of course they said oh we're gonna we're gonna keep this and treasure it and all this I don't think they know where it's at, so I wish I had not given it to right. them. But uh, I did do it with my other two, three nephews, so I still, I still have those. I've kept those, so that I've got those you know, in my safe. But right. That's kind of cool. Well, time capsules to the future mm-hmm. generations. Um, Speaking of capsules, didn't uh, you said you, Elon Musk was on SNL tonight, right? Yes. Didn't yeah, he, that's did, going on right now. Didn't they just uh, successfully land his uh, yep. ship or something? It, 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 uh, I yeah. remember seeing something. It, it came back and came uh, back and it landed upright the way it should and did not explode. Um, so it's like that's another step forward. That's good. Yeah. That's great. He's all but, over because uh, there's talk of him. He was getting fed up with uh, California and he was going to remove his. Uh, either his production facilities or open up a new plant here in Vegas. Uh, I guess where he, he produces the Tesla because Teslas are all over Vegas. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also talk of he has built or wants to build a, uh, a it's like a people mover, but it's like a little train mm-hmm. that, or like an underground train that runs. Uh, if you've ever been to Vegas, they used to have a tram a kind of like a monorail that you could ride from like one end of the strip to the other. Well, now they have, they've got underground trains that they're running from like the convention center to, I think a lot of the major, uh, the major, uh, hotels. Mm-hmm. And I think he wants to build an underground kind of a, uh, not a bullet train, but like an underground individual kind of like a pod that goes from Vegas to LA. And you would just get in your little personal pod and, whoosh, you know, you'd be off down to L.A. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that, you know, he's he's trying to do around here. But That would make sense, except there's only one problem with it. San Andreas Fault and an awful lot of quakes that mm-hmm. occur out there yeah. that lands unstable. But if they can overcome that or have a, a default so that if something does trigger, the system stops until, yeah. uh, right. you know until it can be recovered well, if, they that can, be if cool. they can figure out the channel they should be able to figure this out I think. But sure they are, uh, they they're, are, they're uh, talking about doing something between Washington and the Greenbrier Hotel in West Virginia as well I think they've got hmm. uh, they've awarded either some contract for development or for, for research, research. Not, or a prototype for the system uh, recently and the theory being that people could shuttle out of Washington and get to the relative safety of uh, West Virginia 
uh, in the blink of an eye in the event of a disaster, but also that it's in place for regular business trips. So, you know, if you want to go on a vacation, you just, you grab this train and it would transport you out to the green spaces or to district 12 to to, just for um, hunter game speak. (laughs) They are supposedly, and I think it's been approved, I don't know when they're going to break ground, but they are going to build a bullet train between Vegas and L.A., um, cool. which makes absolutely makes sense because I know the, you know, uh, if you look on a map, you know, theoretically you could get from Vegas to L.A. in about three hours, but because of the, the, the road, it's, it's I-15, it's so clogged that uh, usually it takes you four and a half or so, and I think this you could get to L.A. in... I don't know, under an hour, 45 minutes. Because, um, I mean, we rode bullet trains when we were in Japan. We rode it from Tokyo to oh, uh, cool. Hiroshima. And those are no joke. Those are those are great. One, they're they're bigger, they're more comfortable than a plane, and they're going about 200 miles an hour, and they're just, you just get on it and get to see the countryside. That was that was great. We, had, we bought a, uh, a J-Rail pass so we could ride, because we, we were in Japan 10 days we could ride it as much as we wanted to while we were there. And we mm-hmm. rode it to Hiroshima. We, well, we rode it from Tokyo to, um, not Hiroshima. We went from a train to Hiroshima to, uh, I forget my, my Japanese towns. Anyway, it, um, Kyoto, I think. And then we went to Hiroshima and then we stayed the night and we came back on our trip back. But, uh, you know, but they've been talking about doing that in Texas from Dallas to Houston for years. That's never nothing. Nothing's ever come of that. So, uh, well, you know why? Hmm. The American economy is tied yeah. to the auto industry. Yeah. And if you've ever watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit, <laughs> uh, you've got a, a not so thinly veiled story behind how they terminated the red line and the blue line. Yeah. Uh, in the in the second largest city in the nation to sell more cars. Uh, you know, their mass transit was in existence in LA and then, uh, the powers that be influenced its dismantling so that they would build freeways and need cars. Um, if I mean, nowadays that just seems normal, but at one time it wasn't. And when you look at it in the flow of history, Somebody made a hell of a, a left turn that derailed literally, um, you know, mass transit. It's like well, talking about we had, a, a... we had plenty of oil to, uh, you know, we had plenty of oil to produce gasoline, and we, and you know, the car. We had plenty of space to stretch out, and and you could get around. I mean, when you weren't taking these little back roads, you could get, uh, you could hop on a freeway and get somewhere. But that's. Um, Apparently now the we were uh, we were taking a dog to the vet today, and my wife was reading a, a list of like ten things that don't did not seem to be connected at all, but they all have a shortage. And what was like lumber, steel, mm-hmm. uh, ketchup ketchup packets, yep. computer chips, um, mm-hmm. all this stuff that that you know with the steel and the lumber it doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, it makes sense that they uh, they were thinking, but well, we're We've been, we're in a pandemic. Nobody's going to be buying houses. Nobody's going to be buying cars. So they scale back production. And then suddenly, 
no, no, everybody's buying houses, everybody's buying cars, so they they're now they're trying to catch up. That's why lumber's so expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same with uh, ketchup and computer chips because they didn't think uh, uh, anybody was going to be needing them for like, vehicles and stuff. And then some of the uh, the more tech-savvy places uh, kind of gobbled up all the chips they could find to use them for, you know, because people were buying, if you're stuck at home, you're buying more TVs, you're buying computers, you're buying iPads, you're buying game systems to keep your kids off your back while they're at home. You know, so all those uh, computer chips were gone, but supposedly they're supposed to kind of turn start turning around at the end of the year. Well, we'll see. I don't have to build a house before the end of the year, so, you know, yeah. I don't have to invest in some of those things, although, you know, it's hard to avoid uh, other things. I was There was something else you said that I triggered a thought, and I can't remember what it is for the life of me. Hey, cat, we've got a kitten here that's crying, wants some attention. What do you want? No, no, you can't have it. Okay. Um, I can't remember that you triggered a thought of something in us. Um, we lived in LA for a year in Huntington beach. Wow. And so I was familiar, uh, with, with at least some of the, the highway systems and didn't particularly enjoy it. Um, yeah. you know, I had lived in Detroit for eight years and then LA or, um, Salt Lake city for a year and then Huntington beach for a year. But my work situation was was bad. I did not like it. My wife enjoyed it um, because she was challenged and growing, but I ooh, really but disliked this, it. This you were doing weather in LA? No, I was a uh, program director for a PBS TV station, oh. but the station was on shaky financial ground, um, and they they didn't paint an accurate picture when they were interviewing me. They said that they were not hemorrhaging, but it became very obvious. Once I came on board, that they were still hemorrhaging, and that um, that there was no light at the end of the tunnel. Well, after I left, about seven years or so, the um, the station ultimately turned off its transmitter and closed down and went away. Oh, but it was Proposition 106 in California that instead of guaranteeing funding for community colleges and uh, educational institutions, it disconnected that. So all of a sudden, you know, th- th- those financial institute not financial, those educational institutions were in financial trouble because they didn't have a guaranteed revenue stream coming in. Right. And they had to attract students who had to be successful to pay their bills. And the quality of students that they had been attracting, they didn't particularly care whether you passed or failed on your, you know, in your studies because they had a guaranteed uh, stream from the the state government that was going to support them uh, no matter what you did as a student. So I, my opinion, my interpretation was that it, it spelled the disaster for a number of community colleges. And the one that I was working for had a PBS TV station, but they were, they were sliding. They were going under because the only people who were pledging support to them were people that were in the retirement home (laughs) uh, skyscraper that was uh, in the city and they all watched the programming and made contributions, but they were quite literally a dying breed. And uh, we saw our numbers getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And everybody else was going to cable 
and to VHS. And, you know, there were 23 television stations in, in L.A. And nobody cared about us as being the second PBS station in the market. And so the handwriting was on the wall. I couldn't have saved that station. Uh, or pledge drives. You know. Well, we did pledge drives, and they tried to attract Hollywood talent to come down. In fact, we had um, Nation, Terry Nation from uh, Doctor Who. Really? He came in and, and uh, spoke. Um, he uh, Was he living in he, L.A.? Yeah. Um, wow. He was in the area, and he was... Um, Whenever you tried to press him and say, so what are you working on? It's like, oh, I have a couple ideas in development, but I can't talk about them. Well, everybody's got an, a, an idea in development, you know, got things that they can't talk about because they're, they've pitched things, but nothing's, you know. Yeah. So he was, he couldn't tell you too much because nothing was concrete, but everybody has a treatment or a script or an idea that they have pitched and is, you know, supposedly being developed. So. Right. Well, that's, uh, but he was a pleasant man. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, uh, I enjoyed talking with him. That's kind of a treat because uh, he's the father of the Daleks. Yes, exactly. And a funny story that I'll tell you in thirty seconds. While we had him on the set for the pledge drive, I was able to talk to him because I was familiar with Doctor Who enough to recognize that it was Daleks. The other people who were hosting the pledge show asked him, "So, how did you develop these dialects?" <laughs> And it's like she literally said that on air, and he he corrected her and said, "No, no, darling, it's Daleks, Daleks, little things that scurry around and kill you." She clearly was out of her league. She had no idea what he was talking about. So that's kind of that's a that's a shame. I think he I got, also developed. I think he did the Tomorrow People. Is it that Terry Nation? And did he do Blake Seven? Blake Seven, yes. Yes, and Blake Seven is. Yeah. If you ever seen Blake Seven, Blake Seven is. Yes. I've seen, I haven't seen the whole thing because you, you can't find it. I think I've watched it mostly on YouTube, but it's uh, it's pretty good. It's uh, It had been syndicated uh, four seasons. They had been syndicated through PBS stations, um, and we aired it on that station. And as a result, um, the Blake 7 fan club um, gave me an invitation to show up for their summer picnic in, I can't remember which park it was. Cool. But I met the actor who played... Blake? No. Um, oh, oh dear. Wow. The, the guy who clutches, was, who unexpectedly has the clutch with the female baddie that they know each other. Sort of his second in command. Yeah, it's... Uh, I've just drawn a blank. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Um, I don't... I, I think he recently uh, passed. Oh, um, dear. I think. I could be wrong. But. Nice guy. But, uh, you know, out of the seven characters, he was one of the seven that survived through the whole series i believe yeah because blake is weird blake was in it and then he kind of the actor wanted to leave the show or something he dropped out and he kind right. of comes back at the very last episode I right think. And, and it's frustrating because the fans uh -huh. said just tell him that you didn't do it or that that anyways it's a miscommunication at the end that, yeah. that one shoots the other or that they all get blown up or something but whatever it is it's if they're the fans are frustrated because it doesn't make sense that he wouldn't be more forthcoming and say, right. well, of course I didn't die because I got out by doing this, that, or the other thing. So you, you should trust me. Well, Terry, oh, I can't think of it. It's like Avon or it, Devon. It is Avon. Or, it is Avon. Is it Avon? It is Avon. It, absolutely. The character's that's name. the character's name is Avon. Uh, 
Andy Layden made Andy Leyland made a uh, a comparison between when Picard was on. I don't know if you've watched Picard or no, nope, not at all. Uh, I'm sorry, I've seen the premiere episode. Okay, that was in the clear. He said that's uh, he basically called that show Blake Seven, and it is. If you watch it, it's it's Blake Seven. It's not Star Trek. Really? Um, yeah, it's more about you know a bunch of ragtag guys and a and a ship you know going around getting in trouble. Um, huh. It's not as good as Blake Seven. <laughs> Uh, okay. I don't think Picard's very good at all, but uh, I, I, I may be in the minority there. Um, but yeah, Blake Seven is. Uh, I kind of wish I had. Uh... Have you ever seen UFO? The Jerry Anderson. No, but show? I've heard uh, I've heard Andy talk about it on his show, and he he has high praise for it. Space I've never ever good. seen it. It's uh well, you've seen Space Nineteen Ninety Nine, right? Uh, maybe saw one or two episodes yeah. when it was airing late night TV. I know what it is more than I know of UFO. Uh, yeah. It's it's kind of UFO. It was a really kind of an unofficial sequel to UFO. That's what UFO was supposed to kind of go when it, when it got canceled. But um, you can watch you can watch UFO uh, if you if you've got uh, Pluto TV. I think you can go on your your computer and watch that. They show Space Nineteen Ninety Nine. I love Martin Lando. I think he is a fine actor, but uh, boy, that that the end credits hit so <laughs> in that show. They're like, and it's like, God, there's some. I don't know how to describe it, but the the sensibility, the editing and pacing of yeah. it. Jeez, oh, Pete, I could never quite catch whether that was intended or whether somebody else had edited the. Smash the end credits to the the end of the scene. Or well, something. the first and second season are very different. They made a lot of changes in the second season to kind of make boister the ratings. Uh, obviously, it didn't work, but um, it's a show that I, I kind of appreciate more than I have. Several occasions, I've been like, "Oh, I'll buy, I'll buy it." You know, I got the fact I was at a used DVD mm-hmm. store on Friday. Thought, and they had one on sale that could, you know, they they split theirs up. They didn't release the whole series. They split it up like uh, box set one, two, three, four, five. You get like five episodes in each, mm-hmm. and they had it pretty cheap. But and I carried it around for about half an hour, and I thought, I really don't. I'm not going to revisit this. It's cheap, and that's why that's the urge to buy it. But I'm probably not going to revisit it because it's uh, dated. It's yeah, it's dated, but it's. It's not that good. It's not that good. I mean, there's there's some. The first season is pretty good. The second season, they try to make it a little more action packed. Um, but it's they fall on some of the some of the sci fi tropes that Star Trek always avoided. Space 1999 doesn't, and, and they're, they're a little more or less hard sci fi and more kind of space is weird and there's weird stuff out here and we're gonna run into weird things. Yeah. Uh, so that's you know. That's that's kind of what they were, you know. It, it wasn't as it wasn't as goofy as Buck Rogers when Buck Rogers came out, and they kind of they didn't meet a sci-fi trope they didn't like because they brought all of them in, and and they weren't. Too, I didn't think they were too too interested in telling an intelligent story. They wanted to do more of a Saturday morning kind of show. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but even in that prime wasn't. Time. But even that wasn't very good. It wasn't. It was. 
I don't know. It was something about it that just wasn't. Uh, it didn't click with me. And I, um, I don't, Andy, I think Andy recently did a, a series on Buck Rogers. I must not have heard that one. I was around for that, but I didn't watch it at all. I felt the few scenes that I did see, I felt that it was aimed at, you know, I was in college or yeah. beyond, and I felt it like it was aimed at at kids. Um, same thing for The Incredible Hulk. Yeah, it was out there, but I didn't watch it. I knew the concept of the Hulk, but it didn't. it wasn't in my wheelhouse. I felt no desire to see Bill Bixby play the fugitive with. Oh, exactly. It's what that that show was. Uh, at least the Hulk was a little more. They had a little more social commentary on it. I mean, it was more of. To your point, it was exactly what's the fugitive. Blow right. to town. He'd help somebody. He'd become the Hulk. He's got to leave town. And that was right. David Jansen in every episode of um, the original of the show, fugitive. which is a brilliant but, show. I love that show. Right. If you watch it, there's some really good drama. And it's well written, mm-hmm. and um, and David Jansen is a taciturn but a, a very effective actor. Um, he's underrated, but he was he could do so much with just a raise of an eyebrow or a hesitation in his voice. He was really good. Um, so that's an overlooked gem. Except I hate with a passion Quinn Martin Productions. You know. <laughs> Oh my God, I hate them because they're so formulaic in their Act One, Act Two, Act Three, Act Four epilogue. Ugh, that's yeah. so annoying. Well, that became their standard in the '70s because I think they did Barnaby Jones, yes, Cannon, yes, um, yes, all those that were uh, that to your point were. Um, I think it worked a little better with the Fugitive when they were doing their Act One, Two, and Three. Um, and you could have done that. I think you could have dropped that into to the Incredible Hulk and um, done the same thing. Because the Hulk, Incredible Hulk, was less. It was less sci-fi, really. Occasionally, some, right. they had some sci-fi stuff, but it was more. To your point, it was more about human drama. Right. How Bill Bixby's going to solve somebody's problem, uh, and you know, if he can't do it, he's going to become the Hulk, and the Hulk's going to help out. But then he's got to, you know, ah, oh, got to leave town because you know these guys are after me. But, well, you want to stretch that out a little further. Quantum Leap is the same thing. Uh, you know, leaps into town, has mm-hmm. to solve their problem, and then goes away. There was another series in the late 60s about a motorcycle rider called Then Came Bronson. And it was, you know, it was essentially the same thing as The Fugitive. The guy decides to chuck it and, you know, get walk away from society, gets on his motorcycle, and he's riding across the country. In each episode, he rolls into a new town, uh, faces a new problem, human interest story. Uh, he resolves it with them, however, and then he rides out on his or horse, on his motorcycle. That sounds uh, you know, like just, the uh, Lorenzo Lamas show Renegade from the 80s Very similar. That's probably the same concept that was yep. dusted off. Route but, 66, uh, same thing. They would, uh, you know, they would just happen to be in town, get involved in something, and then they'd move on. Right. Um, and nobody ever died. The main characters are never no. seriously injured or waylaid from getting to their next week's episode. <sighs> Anyways, 
It's a good formula. Yeah. It, so it, it what works. was that? What was that radio drama thing? Uh, you said it was Station Fifty One. Bureau Bureau Forty Two. Bureau Forty Two. Oh, I should be able to remember that. Uh, Bureau Forty Two. I'll just remember the FBI Bureau, and Forty Two <laughs> is the meaning of life. So. Yeah. And he does a pretty good cover of, the, if you're interested in the X Files, he does. I think he's in season nine, and they're short. They're like ten minutes, fifteen minutes, uh, little little summaries of the show. Um, and I think he does. I think most of the stuff he's posting you can find on. If you've ever gone to archive.org, I've gone there, and you can find tons of stuff I downloaded. A bunch of old uh, Superman and Batman radio uh, mm-hmm. programs. Trivia: Did you know Kryptonite was introduced in the Superman radio show? I first? do. Yeah, I remember that, that because they needed the actor to go on vacation, so they invented it uh, so that somebody just kind of moaned on screen, off, off, well, not on screen, on the mic for like a week so this guy could uh, whoever it was could go um but i think the radio also the radio program also introduced perry white and not jimmy olsen because i think he was originally it was not the daily planet i think came from the uh, radio program uh well the same with you didn't realize that the uh, you should know this that the countdown came from a science fiction film the countdown from oh yes Rocket, yeah Yes, um, that it was an invention to increase yeah. tension in mm-hmm. the audience, but that it was not present in the earliest launches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, trying to think what what I saw just recently. Um, the, the Werner von Braun story, which is I aim for the stars or I aim at the stars. Um, they have an example of that where where you know you think they're going to give you a, a countdown at the beginning of it. And it's like, nope. everybody ready? <laughs> Here we go. Flip the switch and go. And it's like, you're like, whoa, what happened to the countdown? And then at the end of the movie, they have a very prolonged countdown uh, when because they'd implemented it by that, that point. Um, the same thing for the Blue, the Blue Max, I believe. Uh, story about World War II fighter mm-hmm. jets that Germany was trying to develop. There's a scene or two in that where test pilots being ready to fly planes is just ready contact go, go. it's like there's not a, at all there's a series on and i used to watch it on netflix i think and it's a national i think it's national geographic and it's called nazi mega weapons and mm. it's you know they're about an hour and it's about uh, mm-hmm. six episodes and i've seen did, one or two of them and they've done like a sequel kind of Nazi mega structures, and I, I've watched those over and over because I eat that stuff up. Because I'm very, I've become very interested in, uh, not, I'm not interested in the Nazis, but I'm interested in the, the work they did in such a short time. The, the way the stuff they built, the stuff they developed over, you know, they were putting new stuff into production in like eight months, when mm-hmm. here it takes ten years. So. That mm-hmm. that really interests me. That you know all the st- especially all the the huge structures they're building. And there's a a great episode on the B two or the not the B two the the rocket program with uh, help me out, Kirk. Who's the guy that we 
we Shanghai to come over here and run our rocket program. Or Werner von Braun? Is that Braun? Is it Braun? Braun. Braun. Yes. Braun. And how he started out as a model rocket guy, and then he yes, and the Nazis grabbed him to because he was trying to develop the. He, I don't think he worked in the buzz bomb, but he or no the yes, was it the buzz bomb? And then he was he was behind the program to get manned flight to get um, high altitude flight. He was always looking at the propulsion, the and to if you believe his explanation, it was a means to an end. He was into the science. He wanted, he needed those resources. They were the ones who decided that they were going to use them as weapons. But he wrote on the back of them. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, that's funny because at the end of the episode, they talk about how he, uh, he was, you know, after the war, I guess we captured the, the rocket base. I can't think what it's called. It was kind of. And a Monday. And a Monday. Um, yeah, and they and they because that was, you know, so far it was so remote that we didn't think we would, they would we that the allies would find it and, uh, and it was just them showing all the stuff they built and they were you know of course their rockets were blowing up left and right and how they had no way of when a rocket would go up they couldn't really tell what was wrong with it they, I guess they had no high speed cameras or they had no way to so they would actually go out. And watch it when it was failing, coming back down, and it had to risk almost being hit, just to mm-hmm. kind of see what it was doing. And he, I think, he finally realized that it, the stress was distorting the fins or something. Anyway, but you know, he, he kind of solved the problem too late uh, to get because I don't think they actually launched that many uh, VT rockets on on London. But you know, I guess the Allies captured. Uh, the complex and we grabbed him and you know he started working for us for the 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 space program and when in the early 60s i guess he was awarded the medal of freedom or something like that so they're you know like this guy was in the nazi party and now we're we're uh, giving him a medal because he helped us reach the moon so well if you believe his version of things he was he joined the nazi party because they were the people that were making things happen right you know, he didn't may not have enjoyed all of their politics, but if you wanted to develop a space program, they were the ones that were in power. They were the ones who, if you could ma- give a them a carrot. Man, yeah. Yes. Um, and it's not so much that we captured them. My understanding is it became apparent as we were bombing Penamunday, um, and they realized we can't go forward. The war is lost. It's only a question of who's going to come in and, and you know, do, do we want to be prisoners of the Russians and the Reds or yeah. <laughs> of the Allies? So which, which side do you want to go with? And basically the decision was, if we go to Russia, we'll be in slave camps um, and we may not survive. If you believe the Allies, they believe in freedom, we have a better chance there. So they sent an emissary to the Allied front to the general command and said we're here we're ready to surrender we are ready to bring you all our research that survived um what sort of a deal can we strike and so (laughs) basically we said great we'll accept it we'll we'll dictate the terms and here we go um you know operation paperclip we're going to import you all into the u.s you all have to pass background tests and checks and what have you and out of the five 
if if this is accurate, this is partially from the movie. Out of the five primary figures in the space program, one did not want to leave Germany, and so he has been lost to history. We don't know what happened to him. Possibly killed by the Reds. Yeah. Of the four that made it to the U.S., one was too heavily involved in the Nazi um, Nazi party and therefore was a security risk and did not pass clearance. And the other three went on to develop our our uh, Redstone rocket, the yeah. Saturn V, and and as you say, our space program got a jump start. Yeah. Uh, because of them, so. Well, that's yeah, right or wrong, that's what happened. Right, and that's what fascinates me about it because it's not that you know my fascination has nothing to do with their politics. It's just the stuff right. that they, the ingenuity and the, the you know, because they were developing a, a jet fighter long before. But it, but that was all that stuff was developed because Hitler became such a nut about uh, super weapons and wanting to. Uh, he wouldn't. You know, he got to the point where he wouldn't listen to anybody, and he was right. basically just. He basically lost the war because he was mismanaging yeah. everything. But he kept wanting to. There's a great one on the the Tiger tank, and yep. how they tried to build a big. Um, the biggest tank. The biggest it was tank. Practic- right. He wanted a basically a battleship on uh, on ground. They call it. They called it a. Oh, what was the name for it? They did build one. It was called a mouse. That that the Porsche built, and Porsche actually helped try to develop the Tiger, the Tiger One, which would be the Panzer Six, I think. And his was kind of revolutionary. He was using uh, gas turbine electric engines instead of diesel, but they kept catching fire. So mm-hmm. Hitler went with the I think Krupp's was building one, and he went with them. And that's what you get your standard tiger. But uh, later, he did build uh, the mouse, which is much bigger uh, than than the tiger. And it had a uh, the tiger had an eighty-eight millimeter. I think this one had a hundred and five, hundred and ten millimeter. Um, it never got past kind of the prototype that the, the I think the Russians seized. Um, but that's the kind of stuff that's like they're developing this stuff in just months. Um, Without and the, also, there's a great contrast between this is this has become this has become World War II podcast, but there's a great contrast between the German ingenuity for their tanks and the Russians. And the Russians, they say, have a, a philosophy of it's good enough. So they would produce something that it's good enough. It doesn't it doesn't have to look perfect. The welds may not look great, but it functions. That's all they cared about. And the German engineers were like, no, this has to be precise and perfect. And, you know, it, it's, you know, the Tiger was almost so complex that it constantly broke down. And then you get mm-hmm. the, the, the T-34 uh, Russian tank that they produced probably more than we produced the Sherman. I think we produced about 50,000 Sherman tanks. I think they produced more. This is one reason why the Germany lost um, uh, Barbarossa, the Operation Barbarossa, when they tried to invade Russia, they didn't realize that one, the Russians had a better tank, and they had them uh, in more in higher numbers. That the tank just had to fit. You know, it wasn't ergonomically correct. It didn't wasn't comfortable to drive. It, many of them didn't have radios, but it functioned and it did the job. And that was kind of their philosophy about everything: just make it good enough to get out in the field, and we can use it. So it's interesting to, con- to, to compare those two. I've seen a couple of those episodes on a PBS station. Uh, a secondary channel 
I think. Maybe it maybe was on the PBS, History Channel. Maybe it's not the History Channel. Or it, maybe it was on the History and maybe PBC, PBS produced them. But, no, um, I don't think so. I think you're right. Though. I think it's an import. I would like to see the whole series now. Uh, I, I missed the majority of them and only caught like one or two. I think I caught the Tiger uh, Tank story. They were on uh, Netflix for the longest time, and you could watch them. They, they may come back, but there's about three seasons. There's Nazi mega weapons, Nazi mega structures, and then there's um, maybe another mega weapons. And they talk about it. And at one point, they also do some uh, one episode on, on the Japanese because they talk about the Yamato and her sister ship, the big battleships, and they talk about uh, Okinawa and some of that stuff. But the the Nazi stuff is kind of what you know. It's just their the amount of concrete that they that they used. There's a, there's a great mm-hmm. one on this huge sub pit they built in um, in France to house the U boats, and it was it was a, a system where you could take the U boat out of the water. It would it would come up on land on a cradle and rotate, and it would go into a bunker where it could be repaired. And the bunkers were like 20 meters of concrete overhead so they would survive any kind of bombing because at that point they uh, the U-boat commander, I can't think of his name the guy in charge of the U-boat program was trying to push that to Hitler saying we can win with U-boats and Hitler wasn't quite convinced and then uh, and, he, and he was about to get I think additional funding because he wanted 500 boats or 1500 boats and and then, of course, about that time, we broke the Enigma code, and that that kind of literally, you know, sank them, pardon the pun, because we could intercept all. We knew where their boats were all the time. So Right, where they were headed, what their right, orders were. Right. That was kind of, you know, they didn't know that, so that was kind of interesting. So. Yeah. This has become the, the, the Nazi World War, <laughs> World War II podcast. Well, uh, that's okay. There's just the two of us here and all our audience, so, you know. Yeah, we, it, it's interesting stuff to... to Anything that I'll watch anything that's about creativity or design or building something because mm-hmm. that's kind of you know kind of where my head's at. So that's all. I'll watch Project One Way. I'll watch. Uh, there's a great show called Forged and Fire where they make. Oh knives. my God! I knew you were going to say that. My <laughs> wife is addicted to that with my daughter. Uh, this blade will kill. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. I don't watch it, but I walk into it when I come home at late at night and they're about halfway into it so I can't change the channel <laughs> yep she's into that too There's another well, one on, the uh... thing to remember about the, the German war machine and most any uh, advances in any society it's always built on the back of slave labor um, oh yeah it was it was the, the they were doing some awful terrible things to you know that they were routing these people up and making them work basically working them to death right um but uh, you've seen Band of Brothers, haven't you? I have, yeah. That's a, an excellent series yeah. that tells a story from our point of view, our side. But yeah. it's fine acting and, and really engaging story that is historically accurate. It's pretty good. I like it better than uh, the, the Pacific. Yeah, that's the sequel. I haven't it's seen all of that. Yeah, I don't like that nearly as much, I think. Yeah. Um, I like Band of Brothers a lot because it kind of followed 
you know, a couple key characters all the way through. Um, what I liked about it is you didn't know when, when they were doing the interviews at the end and you would see the old men adding their comments, You they didn't use subtitles. So you didn't know who was going to survive and who wasn't. Yeah. And then ultimately at the end, they start to identify, oh, this one was, you know, this one was uh, Shorty, this one was uh, Captain Dix, and yeah. this one, you know. Then you start uh, figuring out, and, and that's good because the whole thing, it all relies on you don't know who's going to survive and who doesn't or who's going to be wounded along the way. Interesting sidelight, speaking of, of wounded along the way, um, the guy who was the writer, uh, I'm not going to get the name right. It's going to bug me. Um, it's not Wilson or Watson. Anyways, there's a guy who's shot, and he, he calls out, oh, they got me. And then as he's on the ground, he's like, I can't believe it. Here I am, a writer, and I blurred out just like a B-movie. Oh, they <laughs> shot me. They got me. His name, Ken Kenyon? I think his last name is Kenyon. Keenan or Kenyon? David David Wayne Kenyon? I could Google it and figure it out. Anyway, he survives. He gets out at the end of the war. And he, he you know, his viewpoint of, of this whole journey is, is very helpful to illuminate a lot of points. Yeah. Um, but when he gets out, you don't know anything from him. But the next time he pops up in history is he writes a book on shark, man-eating sharks. And I haven't got the title right, but it was published. And then he was lost at sea off a sailboat off San Diego or Los Angeles or someplace. And he, he's gone. He's lost at sea. But his book remains. And when Jaws, the movie, came out and the publishing house, you know, Warner Books, was looking for anything to slap the label Jaws on. His book was the um, most well-researched, most complete, um, what's the word that I want, Public, publicly accessible book, better than anybody else had written. And so it got a new cover slapped on it, Jaws, the man-eating shark or, or something like that. Not the novel. But it was the definitive popular culture book. Um, it wasn't. Yeah. So it wasn't a fiction book. It was a book on no, it sharks. Was, it was nonfiction. It was about sharks. He became the expert on sharks. Interesting. Uh, for the lay public, and and it wasn't until that movie came out, and he already had disappeared, lost at sea. Whatever happened to him happened, and then the book was licensed by Warner, and they. They made a mint off that book. It was on every bookshelf in like 74, 75 when the Jaws craze hit. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen it. Yeah, I just, for the life of me, I can't think of the, the correct title. But it is something like like uh, Shark, Maneater or Misunderstood or something yeah. to that. And they slapped a new title on it. And it, But I'll be damned if I can think of the guy's name. It's like David... David Anthony Wayan, something like that. Yeah, I, you can find it if you want to, if you have any interest. But it's it's an interesting bounce. Uh, another character, another person who came out of that same outfit. Um, I can't think of the character's name, but he kind of begins to lose it in Bastogne when they're being shelled. Um, 
he's he's played by the same guy who played uh, Dum Dum in Avengers. Neil. Yeah, tall guy, tall kind of redheaded yes. guy. Yeah, like him a lot. He uh, that that man went on to become the assistant district attorney who prosecuted the Helter Skelter. Um, Manson? Charlie Manson case. Interesting. Not Boo Soglia, who was the lead uh, attorney, but his assistant was the the World War II veteran who came out of that thing. So he had a real interesting brush with uh, being famous yeah. by association with that case, too. Hmm. Interesting. Well, it's funny because you were talking about Matt Smith earlier. I think he plays Charlie Manson and... Tarantino's newest film, um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. I haven't I'd seen like it either, to... but I think Matt Smith plays Manson. He would do a good job with it. I remember Steve Rails back in the Helter Skelter made-for-TV movie in about, I don't know, 74, 77, 78. He had the definitive uh, Manson down for years. Well, man, uh, Rails back's about half crazy anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's a little nuts, but uh, he had Life Force on the other day, and TV was watching that. It's kind of nuts on that. Well, listen, it's been an almost uh, 90 minutes here. Yeah, I think we can uh, wrap it up. I think I've kept you. I know it's uh, it's a lot more. It's you know, it's only 10:30 for me, but it's like what 1:30 for you. Pretty close. Yeah, you know, and uh, I don't know if you do. You have to work tomorrow. Or do you have... No, no, no. I work uh, weeknights, five nights a week. I don't work the weekends. Oh, okay. So you can sleep Unless in. Unless somebody goes on vacation or gets sick, <laughs> and then I may get drafted in to fill in. But that's very rare. Yeah. Well, I think we can we can kind of close this out. This was a lot of fun, Kirk. I didn't, you know, our first time, because didn't, we didn't have anything prepared. I know when the other guys were going to come on, I think David wanted to talk about... He, was, he had been watching uh, Superman and Lois. Which uh, I haven't seen, but it's on HBO, so I could watch it. But mm -hmm. uh, I just haven't, I just haven't had time to sit down and watch it or have had enough interest. But so I really thought, well, you know, what are me and Kirk can talk about? And you know, we found a lot of stuff to talk about. So this is, this was actually a lot of fun. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, if we haven't bored everybody else about World War Two, <laughs> we've at least given them a good chance. We've to, given uh, them a lot of stuff to go, books and movies and TV shows to go and uh, to look up. And, you know, that's, we, it wasn't a lot of comics this time, and it wasn't a lot of cocktails, but uh, it's a good conversation. That's what, and I think that's what, that's what we're looking for. So, so thanks, Kurt. My pleasure. We'll see you again in another week or so. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, -E -E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T. -T
B-Y-R-N-E-D, at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. Till next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. <laughs>